Well, it's great to see all of you here. We are going to be back in the book of Revelation next week, chapter 4. We're going to be in the throne room, Lord willing. i got to say that because that's what I preached on last week. Now, this week I want to finish our little packet on sanctification. And I don't mean to imply when we're done this morning that this is the final word. Many more things could be said. But what I want to do this morning is I want to set forth what I believe to be the relationship between what God does and what we do in our sanctification process. And I'll be showing you that sanctification process is really better understood as transformation. And I'll explain why I'd rather use that term. In fact, there's a man that Bob had already talked about named David Peterson. He wrote a book called Possessed by God. And he would argue that our terminology even for sanctification is somewhat misleading. And so I'll explain a little bit of that as well. So with that, I want to remind you where we left off last time. We had left off... Oops, I can't get my thing to go here. Let's see if I can get it to forward. There we go. I want to remind you that we were on this slide, and I had given homework out, if you recall. And I'll just start with number two. Remember we had looked up the terms about sanctification in our English concordance? We had looked up sanctified, sanctify, sanctifies. And we had seen that the predominant usage in the New Testament was for God sanctifying us. Like in Hebrews 10.10, where we were sanctified once and for all by the finished work of Christ. In fact, 28 of the 32 usages had to do with God sanctifying or setting us apart. And typically, once and for all. Okay? Now, I also had you look up that term, the mind and for proved. Now, I'm just going to read Romans 12.2 for the sake of time. Notice Romans 12, 2, Paul said, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let's stop right there. That's sanctification or the process of sanctification. It's right there. If you want one passage that describes what the process of sanctification is, it's not being conformed to this world, but being transformed. The term metamorpho is where we get our term metamorphosis. So the idea then is in this life, you and I will stop thinking like the world and we'll start thinking like Christ, loving the things that he loves and hating the things that he hates. And as we're transformed then by the renewing of our mind, we think differently, we end up acting differently. That's what it's all about. Now, remember, we talked about mind that I have highlighted red. Norm did a great job in doing research and he found that the term noose It sounds just like a noose, like you'd put around your neck if you're... I won't go any further than that, but you know what I mean. Um, It's the intellectual faculty, isn't it? It's the seat of our intellect. It's how we think. And so we are called to think differently. Now, notice the purpose statement. It's so that you may prove what the will of God is. Now, remember what the term prove was? Dakimatsu? It had to do with testing something to discern whether it is genuine. And so as our minds are transformed through the scriptures, we are able to determine what's pleasing to God and what is not. And again, as we think differently, we end up acting differently. Now, remember what that term proved, Akimatsu? Remember we had a cross-reference, Romans 1.28. You can jot that down again. Remember there were those who were the unregenerate, unbelievers, and it says in Romans 1.28 that they did not see fit, dakimatsu, to acknowledge God. So they didn't discern that it was necessary to acknowledge God. And therefore, what did God give them over to? An adakimas mind, a depraved mind. A mind that is incapable of discerning what the will of God is. That's a reprobate mind. I like the way Bob said it. He says, you know... They disapproved of God. God disapproved of them. That's exactly right. Bob said that once in a radio session. I thought, boy, I've got to write that down. <laughs> yeah, Rich. I'm sorry, we've got to get you on tape. <laughs> John MacArthur said that a depraved mind could be a mind that does not work. Like, it, it just doesn't make sense. Like, for example, people saving wolves, and the wolves are killing their pets and stuff like that, you know, and things like that. Like a, a mind that does not work. You know, a mind that does not make sense. It cannot basically add one plus one. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily um, 
I, 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 here's what I would say. It's, it's not necessarily an intellectual problem. It's not as if you're speaking English and they perceive it as Chinese. They, you know, they just can't comprehend it. It's more of a moral issue. They don't like when you're teaching the gospel. They don't like it. They're morally against it. And so because they're morally against it, then they can't perceive it and understand it. So it's not merely an intellectual problem, although it's, it's somewhat that. I mean, depravity affects all of us. I mean, all aspect of our, our being. But it's primarily a moral issue. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why I remember in Romans 10, Paul says, you know, he hasn't asked you to ascend into the heavens to bring Christ down or to descend down to Sheol to bring Christ up. What has he asked you to do? But he says, merely believe the word uh, that is near you. And the idea is that he's not asking you to do anything difficult but to believe. But people won't do it. Why? Because as the light came into the darkness, men loved their dark deeds rather than the light because their deeds were evil, right? So it's, a, it's more of a moral issue. Yeah, that's the idea of depravity. Does that make sense? Yeah, you yep. can step further saying that too, but plus the fact that it doesn't even, you can't even, you, with through like political correctness, they don't even make sense. Some yeah, of the it is, reasoning. it's irrational. Yeah, right. irrational. Right, yeah. yep. Yep, it's, uh, you're right, that's certainly true. That ends up being irrational. Okay, so the idea then is we want to start thinking differently. As we think, we're going to end up acting upon that. That's what sanctification is. Now, I like the term transformation or renewal. That's a term that this Peterson uses. I think it's well said because why? The passage itself here in Romans 12, 2 talks about being transformed. Let's use the biblical language. Sanctification, the process of sanctification, is more of Christians putting terminology into the scriptures that really aren't there. The real issue that we're going through today as we live our Christian lives is one of transformation. Okay, now I want to talk then about sanctification being us or God. I'm using the terminology as Christians use it. I'm talking about the process of sanctification. Now I want to remind you the difference between justification and what we would refer to as the process of sanctification. Let's begin with justification. When we talk about the relationship between God and man there, we know justification is completely an act of God, what we would call a monergistic work, that God alone saves us. So remember, justification is the one-time act whereby people are declared righteous in God's sight because of their faith alone in Christ and because of Christ's work, his atonement, and his perfect life, right? And that's God's work alone. Why? Because as it says in John 6, 44, No one is able, I like the term able better, because it's not about permission. No one is able to come to me unless the Father draws him, right? So it's human inability. So that's why justification is only by God. But when we get to sanctification, here's the issue. A lot of times we like to use the term synergistic. Bob and I have talked numerous times about this, and we don't like the term synergy. Synergism would imply that there's both man and God working together. Now, where it it is true that you and I have responsibility in sanctification, if you use the term synergism, it can imply that you have two equal parties. God does 50%, you and I do 50%. That is not the biblical data. And so the way I would juxtapose it with justification is I would say sanctification, God is essential and primary. Now, that doesn't mean we don't have anything to do, as we'll see later in in Hebrews 12, we are to pursue sanctification without which no one will see God, okay? But God is essential and primary in that process, all right? If, yes, Brian. Um, I would argue that instead of saying God is essential and primary, I would like to make the argument that it's 100% because you, what you just said is we would pursue that. Well, once again, we wouldn't want to pursue that without uh, God, without him initiating our pursuit. I agree. Well, let me give you an analogy. Let's think of it this way. Um, Israel's walking in the wilderness. They were completely saved, as it were. Think of their salvation like justification, the imagery. They were saved by God's work alone. Unless God had killed the firstborn of the Egyptians and split the Red Sea and brought those people out supernaturally, they wouldn't exist as a people. But now that they're in the wilderness, they really have to walk, okay? 
So if, if they just say, you know what, God is going to do it all. I'm just going to sit here and he's going to have to teleport me to Sinai. No, they really have to obey. They really have to walk. And so the difference here is because when we're before our justification, we're unregenerate. Okay, but after our justification, now we're regenerate and we have the spirit. And so there's a qualitative difference now in the human being. And so I'm glad it's a perfect segue. That's what I want to allude to next. The unregenerate, this is before our justification, we're slaves to sin. And there's nothing that we can do that's pleasing to God. Nothing. In fact, turn your Bibles. Let's just, I love Bob, what he was doing the last few times where we look at the scriptures ourselves. So turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Verses 5 through 6. Now, as you're turning your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 6, remember in verse 1, Paul asked the question, shall we sin then so that grace may abound? He says, may it never be. And then what he goes on to do is to argue that we've been united by Christ or in Christ. Okay, so the moment you placed your faith in Jesus, you're with him. And that's what baptism symbolizes. Baptism symbolizes our being united with Christ. We are positionally dead with him, although we haven't experienced our physical death. And you and I are positionally also raised with him, although we haven't experienced our physical resurrection. But positionally, those things are true. Why? Because we're in Christ. And so because of that, listen to what he goes on to say in verses 5 through 6. He says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So there we go. We're united with him. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now, listen to this purpose statement. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Does everybody see that? The implication is prior to our new birth, prior to our justification, we were slaves to sin. And slaves to sin can do, as we see in Romans 8.8, 8, nothing pleasing to God. In fact, write down Romans 8.8. 8, it says there, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, meaning we cannot come to faith in Christ and we can do no obedient act that is pleasing to God. We're dead in our trespasses. That's the unregenerate state. However, when God regenerates us by the Spirit, enabling us to believe the gospel, you and I become justified once and for all, sanctified, set apart once and for all, and then we're filled by the Holy Spirit, and now we're in a different qualitative state. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we're finally able to please God. Does that make sense? So now we're in a different ballgame. And that's why when we look at our sanctification process, we do, in fact, have the ability to obey God. Okay, does that make sense? Why? Because the Spirit is within us. Right now, again, God is still essential and primary. We're not going to be doing this apart from Him, but in Him, as I'll show you in John 15. All right? But turn your Bibles, first of all, I want to show you this idea of being no longer slaves to sin as a believer Turn your Bibles to John chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. John chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. As you're turning there, remember here Jesus talking to Jews. And some of them are obviously believing in Jesus. But the Jews thought that they were children of Abraham merely because of their physical descent. And because they were children of Abraham... They belonged to God. They were free men and women. No matter if they were being attacked by the Romans and under their rule, or whether it be the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Persians, they thought they were free men and women. Why? Because they were physical descendants of Abraham. And Jesus has to say, no, you're slaves. Why? Because you're slaves to sin. And only through Christ then could you be set free. That's the idea. So let's read here in John 8, 31 through 33. It says, so Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now remember, let's just stop there. They are not making the argument, these Jews, that they were never taken over by a foreign nation. That would be absurd. 
They were obviously capt captives in Babylon for 70 years. Uh, the Persians after that, the Romans, the Greeks, a lot of people had taken them over. That's not the argument they're making. The argument they're making is despite their circumstance, because of their physical lineage, they're descendants of Abraham, therefore they belong to God. And so they're claiming to be sons of God because of physical lineage. Jesus says, no, you're not a son, you're a slave. Okay, why? Because they're slaves to sin. So let me put it up on the board then, his argument. Verse 34 through 36. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, remember, amen, amen. Here's Jesus showing that he is the authoritative spokesman for God. Normally, a Hebrew teacher would say their message and then their disciples say amen, amen at the end, saying this is a true word from God. Jesus doesn't need the approval of man. He is God. So he says it at the beginning. He speaks authoritatively. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, notice that phrase I've highlighted red, everyone who commits sin. That is a present active participle of poieo. Now, what's poieo? You can just write down P-O-I-E-O. Poieo means to do. Okay? Now, the present tense focuses on the idea that this is ongoing action. So literally, you could render this as the one who keeps doing sin. So this isn't someone who sins or struggles with sin. This is someone who is characterized by sin. All right? So let's think about believers are those who struggle with sin. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will struggle with sin. Now, this may be shocking, but think about it. An unbeliever doesn't struggle with sin. They just live in it. Okay? That's the point that Christ is making. They're a slave to it. They brag about it. In fact, that's what it says in Romans 1. You're exactly right, Rich. They, in fact, they ask others to do the very evil deeds. Yeah. So, so that's the argument that he's making is that everyone who doesn't belong to him is a slave to sin. But notice at the end in verse 36, he says, now the conditional language, notice he says, if the son makes you free, what? You'll be free indeed. Free men no longer, free men and women no longer slaves to sin when you come to Christ. So now for the first time, you're no longer in bondage, but you can do that which is pleasing to God. Not by your own strength, but because he set you free and because of the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. So that's why we, there's a difference between, you see, justification, which is God alone, because you were slaves to sin then. But now in sanctification, or what we want to call transformation, you and I are no longer slaves to sin, and so you and I can now obey God, all right? We're in the battle. We're in the battle that we were never in before because we always succumb. But now we're in the battle to resist sin and to obey God, all right? In fact, let me show you the stages and the ability of man. This is something that Augustine had come up with many, many years ago, fourth century theologian. Some of you might like Augustine, some like Augustine. I don't want to get into that debate. You say it the way you want. But he had a bunch of Latin phrases. I'll just give it to you in English. These are the four stages in the ability of man. I think this is biblical. Number one, before the fall, mankind was able to sin and able not to sin. Okay, now think about it. After the fall, mankind was unable not to sin. That's all we could do is sin. Why? Because we were slaves to sin. That's exactly what Jesus was saying, right? We're slaves. Slaves under bondage to sin. But now after regeneration, this is the new birth. This is what Jesus is referring to when he says you must be born again. Because being born again enables us to believe. And then we're no longer slaves to sin. So after regeneration, we're able to sin and able not to sin. All right? But the good news is, is that after glorification, we'll be unable to sin. That will be nice, yes. <laughs> that is well said, yes. That's what I'm looking forward to, yeah. So when, when a person from yeah. a seeker-friendly church says, I've got free will, you can say, yeah, you got free will to sin. That's right. That's right, exactly right. Prior to regeneration, amen. That's exactly it. Yep. Um, now, here's what I want everyone to do. Let's talk about after regeneration. Turn your Bibles again to Romans six twelve through 13. Remember, we'd already laid out the fact that those who belong to Christ are positionally with him. They are dead with him and also raised anew. 
That's what we had concluded. Now in Romans 6, 12 through 13, Paul can say this to people who are believers. He says, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So here's what I want you all to think about. You and I live in a unique position of what I would call already not yet. And what I mean by that is we are already set free from sin, and yet our complete salvation from sin, the complete ability to not sin is not yet until we're glorified. So we're in this unique position, and this is one of the thoughts that Paul has, I think, all the way from Romans 5 to Romans 7, is you and I are in this unique position of already, yes, we're set free from sin, but it's not yet that we're completely free. We still struggle and fight, don't we? All right, so the idea then is because you and I have been set free, you and I are to live like those who are in the kingdom, to live like those who have already been completely set free, to live like those who are really in the heavenly realm. Because remember, think about Ephesians 2.6, Paul says this, he says, God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Positionally, we're there. And we're to act like that here and now, knowing all the while that it's going to be a battle. That's the in-between position that we're in. It's an already, not yet. So the process whereby you and I become more conformed to the image of Christ happens how? By believing the promises of God. Because it's a battle to believe. As the scriptures inform our thinking, you and I start to drift away from this world and start to become more like those who are seated in the heavenly places like we are, actually are positionally. That's the idea. Okay. Now, I want to talk about after glorification. There's a great passage. Let's think about notice number four on the screen. After we're glorified, what will our lives be like? Well, we're not exactly sure. We're not given a lot of data, but we are given some hints in Scripture that we won't sin any longer. And one of them comes in 1 John 3, 2, where John here is talking to believers. He says, Beloved, that's believers. He says, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. Now, the appearance there is a reference to the second coming, his second advent. And notice the claim, we will be like him. The term like there is homeos. Homeos means to resemble, to be of the same kind. Okay, you can hear the the root, really, for homosexuality. People love the sex of the same kind. But the idea here is not that we're going to be many gods, but the idea that we're going to be like Christ in the sense that we won't sin either. And remember I talked about in Revelation chapter 3 verse 12, we were going through that passage in Revelation where we were looking at the promise given to the church in Philadelphia. And that was a church that was faithful. And remember Jesus says, I will write the name of my God upon you. And what's significant about that is you and I remember the third commandment says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. And the point is all of us have done that. We've lived in a way where we took upon ourselves the name of the Most High God and we lived in such a way that it brought disrepute and it profaned His name. But what Jesus is promising is that one day in glory, you and I will only bring kavoth, glory, the weightiness of God because we won't sin against him anymore. That's the great promise. Now, we're we're not there yet, and so we're still in this battle. But we're no longer slaves to sin either, as Jesus says in John chapter 8. Okay, so that's where the means of grace come in. You and I have this unique position where, yes, positionally we're seated in the heavenly realm, but we're living here and now struggling against sin. And so the word of God is used then, to conform our minds so that we think like those who are in the kingdom and not those who are in this world. That's why scripture is absolutely primary. All right, so what I want to do is talk about this process of becoming set apart. Number one, we must think differently. As we think, we'll also act. Okay, we're not to be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So the battle in our sanctification, if we talk about it as a process, what I 
would rather call transformation, it's a battle to think differently. It's a battle to believe, isn't it? Think about it in your life. <clears throat> Any given sin that you partake in, what you're saying is, I would rather have that than the kingdom. Right? That's what you're saying. And that's what I've said. It's like Esau. Bob and I were talking about Esau one day. Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of beans. Right? And every sin, in a sense, is that. Every sin is selling your birthright for a bowl of beans. Now, it's not permanent. I'm not saying that. But that's what it is. Okay, so the reason why you sit under Scripture is Scripture reminds you, no, these things are true, and you can live for the promises, and you can turn away from the things of this world. That's why we want to believe in the promises of God. So the second thing we have to realize, then, is God's work is primary. He's essential, and He's primary, and if He does not act, you and I are dead in the water. Now, are we slaves to sin like we are before regeneration? No. He can literally called us to say, don't sin. And you and I, with the Spirit, have the ability to obey, whereas the unregenerate, they can do nothing pleasing to God, according to Romans 8.8. All right? Now, let me just talk about Christ and what He did for our sanctification. Let's think about these different steps. First of all, when we talk about sanctification, remember, we've been set apart once and for all. So turn your Bibles real quickly again to Hebrews 10.10. I want to remind you of this. Hebrews 10.10. Let's just remind ourselves that we've been set apart once and for all. I love this verse, by the way. Hebrews 10.10 is a good one to have on your refrigerator. (laughs) Notice Hebrews 10.10 says, By this will, Thelema, I believe, or Bulamai, it's one of the two, but the point is, whose will? Well, it's God's will. By God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once and never again. You've been set apart. So Christ has done that for you once and for all. But we're also being completely sanctified by Christ's work we see in eternity. So you think about the past, we've been set apart once and for all. In the future, we will be set apart once and for all. That's what we read in 1 John 3, 2. We will be like Him. We'll see Him as He is, right? But what about now? Well, what we see now is that this transformation process is also a work of God primarily a work of God, essentially a work of God. In fact, in Colossians 2.19, Paul writes that the growth is from God. The growth of the entire body is from God, Colossians 2.19. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here in John 15. John 15, verses 1 through 4, Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Let's stop there. This is extremely weighty and significant that Jesus is saying that he is the vine. Go back to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, you don't have to turn there, but just write it down, jot it down. And in your mind, remember in Isaiah chapter 5, God had planted Israel as his vineyard, as his vine. What was the problem with Israel? They didn't bear fruit. They didn't respond. They were dead in their trespasses. In fact, in the Hebrew, it says in in Isaiah 5 that they bore stink fruit. (laughs) That's not good. So they were fruitless. Jesus comes on the scene, and he is the vine that Israel never was. So if you trust in Jesus, now you are bearing fruit. Why? Because you're with him. So you say, well, you know what? I don't have any fruit. Well, Christ does. He's the true vine. And if you're in him, then you're pleasing to God. Isn't that beautiful? And so now, what's the role of the Father? Well, he's the vine dresser. And so notice Jesus says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. So in other words, they weren't really Christ. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Notice this term abide, the term meno, literally can be rendered to live or to remain. And so notice the conditional language that's all in red. He says, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless, what's the condition? Unless it abides in the vine. He says, so neither can you unless you abide in me. 
if you and I don't abide in Jesus Christ, if we go outside of the vine, we won't bear fruit. That's why we can say in the process of sanctification or what we would rather call what? Transformation. God, Christ, is essential and primary. So if you and I come up with some other plan than Christ has come up with, outside of the means of grace, then you and I are outside of the vine. Are we not? Let's say I say, you know what? I've got a great plan to become more like Christ. I'm going to go out into the desert by myself in solitude for three months. Well, where did Christ ordain that through his apostles and prophets in the word of God? He didn't. You're outside the vine. You're on your own. Let's say you say, you know what? What I really need to do is go back to the Mosaic law. Or I need to go to legalism that God has never ordained. I'll go after people for the jokes they say or for this or that. Are you in the vine? No, you're outside of the vine, aren't you? We have to remain in the vine. That's how significant it is. It's his plan. Okay, so what's his plan? The means of grace. All right? Now, let me just show you a passage that is absolutely fascinating. And what it will do is I think it will drive home how absolutely incredible it is that Jesus gives us the word of God. You're going to be, I think, marveled at the riches that you have in the word of God and how primary it is for our sanctification. So I want to talk about this passage here in Ephesians. And turn your Bibles to it, if you will. Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. It's going to be our home plate passage here now for a while. So I'll have you turn back to other passages. So make sure you have like a bookmarker or something to your finger or something to keep that at hand. But turn to it now, Ephesians 4, 8 through 10. Yeah. Oops, I'm sorry. We'll get the mic here. Yeah. First John chapter 2, it talks about being in Christ. Yes. Could you just explain that? I know you've explained that to me before, and it talks about our, how obedience is how we know we are in Christ. Yes. Um, no, that's good. Uh, in Christ or in Christ Jesus or in Jesus Christ is a term that's all over the Bible. And it's this idea, what, what in Christ means is when you placed your faith in him, the Hebrews understood this idea of corporate solidarity. We as Americans don't. What corporate solidarity means is when you trusted upon Jesus Christ, you're with him. You're in his camp. Now, if you're in Christ or claim to be in Christ and you always act in a way that's sinful, the idea would be, well, maybe he's really not in Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? So that's why obedience... It's not that you're justified by your obedience. It's that your obedience reflects the fact that you really believe because you act on what you believe, all right? But those who are in Christ are regarded as righteous and holy. Why? Because they're with him. So, so what Christ has done, his death and his resurrection, that's for us. So that's why God can say, well, you're already seated in the heavenly realm. Why? Because that's where Christ is and you're with him. Isn't that beautiful? Now, corporate solidarity, I'm going to talk about a little bit of that today after Bob's sermon. Um, those who are helping those who are in sin, they're in solidarity with them. That's how the Bible understands corporate solidarity, right? So at the end of the day, we're either in corporate solidarity in Christ, that is, we're believers in him, or we can be in solidarity with Satan and his minion. That's why Colossians 1.13 is so shocking. He delivered us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're with him. Yeah. I, does that help? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, this passage is absolutely astonishing. It's very beautiful. There's going to be a quotation here that Paul uses from Psalm 68. Let's look at what he says. Now, in this passage, by the way, Ephesians 4, Paul is going to be talking about how God is going to be able to, how God is able to make us walk in a worthy manner. That's Ephesians 4.1. Ephesians 4.1, Paul exhorts us to, if we're believers, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now you're going to see what God does to enable you to do that. And it's through the word. Ephesians 4.8 through 10, it says, Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, this is what Jesus did, he led captive a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. 
Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? By the way, that would be Christ's incarnation where he comes down to earth. That's what it means. It's a metonymy for that. Now verse 10, he says, he who descended is himself also he who ascended. That's Christ's ascension at the right hand of the Father far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. All right, now let's focus on what's in all caps. That is a quotation from Psalm 68, 18. So with your finger or a marker in the Ephesians 4 passage, turn to Psalm 68, 18. The first thing I want you to see when you turn your Bibles to Psalm 68, 18 is that there is a difference between what Psalm 68, 18 says and how Paul quotes from that passage in Ephesians 4, 8. Notice in Psalm 68, 18, it talks about God receiving gifts from man. But notice Paul says that he gave gifts to man. Does everyone see that? Now, this discrepancy has led scholars, in fact, I was in a debate and wrote a paper about this in seminary, Many scholars today will claim that Paul, because he's an apostle, he's playing fast and loose with the Old Testament text, and he's merely turning it and changing it to fit his needs. And what these scholars would claim is that Paul is engaging in what's called a pesher interpretation. Pesher comes from a Hebrew term, pesherim, which means interpretation. Now, Do you remember when the Qumran scrolls were found, the Dead Sea Scrolls, in 1947? There was a mass of literature called Pesherim, or interpretive literature. These were basically commentaries by the Essene community, those who lived around Qumran, and they were commentaries on the scriptures themselves. And when you look at their commentaries, they believed that there was two levels of interpretation. The first level of interpretation would be the ordinary what the passage just means and the layman can understand it. But they would claim that there would be a second level of interpretation. And this level of interpretation wasn't clear. It went beyond the original intent, and it was only available to an elite class, and they called this elite one at the end of the day the teacher of righteousness. And so oftentimes this secondary meaning would go beyond the original intent of the original author, like the prophets who penned the Bible. Is everybody with me? Now, today, think about the problem. You have New Testament and Old Testament scholars in evangelical seminaries claiming that's what Paul did. Paul took the plain meaning of the text, and he did a pesher interpretation where he went to a meaning that really wasn't there. So he he changes the meaning just ad hoc for his own purposes. And what I want to show you is that's not true. And when we realize it's not true, we realize just exactly what Christ has done for our sanctification. So when we look at Psalm 68, the key is to understand Psalm 68. Sorry, I've got to move my cursor here a little bit. Let me set the context for Psalm 68. Psalm 68 is an enthronement celebration more than likely. I think the original context was this. Psalm 68 celebrated the moving of the ark to Jerusalem. And it either happened when David originally beat the Jebusites in 2 Samuel or when Solomon allowed the Levites to bring the ark into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, when he had completed the Solomon temple. Okay, it's either one. Now, there's two parts to Psalm 68. You want to jot this down if you want to understand the passage. Two parts to it. The first is verses 1 through 19. Verses 1 through 19 reminisces about God's past victories, how he overcame enemies and saved his people, especially the Exodus. When you get to verses 20 through 35, Psalm 68 reveals God's greatness and expects future triumphs that will ultimately be realized in the millennial kingdom. All right? Now, let's look at Psalm 68, 16 through 18. That's of primary interest to us. So again, Psalm 68, verses 16 through 18. Again, this is reminiscing about God's past triumphs. The psalmist writes, Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely Yahweh will dwell there forever. So let's just stop there in verse 16. 
What is this mountain with many peaks? Well, the mountain is Bashan. That would be the Hermon mountain range. So remember, where did the enemies of Israel come down after them? Well, it was from that direction, from the northwest. That's where their enemies were. That's where the Canaanite religion believed Baal resided. Where did the pinnacle of God's enemy come from? Baal? The people that, remember the Canaanites were worshiping? That Baal, his, where he, his abode, where he resided, was in Mount Hermon. Okay, so the idea then is this is a, uh, the headquarters of demonic activity. It is the headquarters of false religion. It is the headquarters of that which is opposed to God. And so the writer is saying that the, the demons, as it were, are looking at envy, the fact that God has placed his abode not on Mount Hermon, but where in Zion. So God is going to overcome the world. His abode is going to be in Zion, not where the false gods have taken their residence. Verse 17, now here's the angelic beings. It says, the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai. Notice it doesn't say at Sinai, as at Sinai in holiness. Verse 18, he says, you have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. So again, in verse 18, you see this idea that he received gifts. Okay, now, what he's ascending to here in the context is he's ascending to Mount Zion. So this is God going up to Jerusalem. And notice he says that when he received the gifts, he received it among the rebellious. Does everyone see that in verse 18? Well, the rebellious, that term, sarer, every time it's used in Isaiah, every time it's used in Hosea, Every time it's used in Jeremiah is a reference to the Israelites. How many times? Every single reference. It's a reference to the Israelites. So when it says that he received gifts, he received them from the rebellious, namely the Israelites. And notice the purpose of him receiving those gifts. There's a purpose statement. It was so that Yahweh could dwell there. Now, what is it that enabled Yahweh to dwell in Zion? It was the sacrificial system. Because at least... It provided a temporary appeasement to his wrath that would be kindled against his people. So the gifts that he received, more than likely, as we will see, were the Levites themselves. Why? Because the Levites were responsible for the sacrificial system. Now, get a load of this. We see evidence of this in the scriptures. Numbers 8, verses 18 through 19. Notice it says, but I have taken the Levites instead of every firstborn among the sons of Israel. I have given the Levites as a gift to Aaron and to his sons from among the sons of Israel to perform the service of the sons of Israel at the tent of meeting and to make atonement on behalf of the sons of Israel so that there will be no plague among the sons of Israel by their coming near to the sanctuary. So God, remember all the deities during this time in Israel, they would always demand the killing of the firstborn child or the firstborn whatever. If you had a calf or whatever animal you had, the firstborn belonged to the deity. But God doesn't obviously want there to be the murder of the firstborn children. So he is God, though, in this culture, and he is going to intervene in this culture. And so instead of taking the firstborn children and putting them to death, what does he do? He takes the Levites. But notice here, he's taking the Levites to himself as a gift in order to give them back, right? He's taking them, he's receiving these gifts in order to give the gifts. And we see the same thing again in Numbers 18. Numbers 18, 6 says, Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you, dedicated to Yahweh to perform the service for the tent of meeting. Now, let's apply that back then to Ephesians 4.8. Remember, Ephesians 4.8 is quoting from what? Psalm 68.18. Ephesians 4.8, Paul says that Jesus gave gifts, but in Psalm 68.18, it says that God had received gifts. And so we have scholars today who say, ah, Paul is playing fast and loose with the text. He's reading into the text what was never there. No, they're wrong. 
Paul fundamentally understood that God had received the gifts of the Levites in order that he may give them so that the people of God may dwell with them. So do you see the exquisite argument that's being made then is that Jesus Christ, who is God, has also given gifts. And lo and behold, the gifts were also men. And they were men who gave a scripture. He goes on, he says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Let's stop there. God in the Old Testament, Psalm 68, he received the Levites in order to give them back. What Jesus is doing is he's also giving gifts and they're men. And notice every single one of these men are those who are responsible for what? The word of God. The apostles and prophets are those who are inspired by God to reveal scripture to us, to write scripture. And then we have the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers who dispense and teach it. So every single one of these men has to do with what? The word of God. That's how absolutely essential the word of God is to our sanctification. Jesus, when he ascends, he gave gifts. And the gifts had to do with these men who gave scripture. That's shocking. No longer are they Levites who enable us to be in the presence of God. They're the men who gave us scripture because it's scripture that changes us. It's scripture alone that makes us to have a transformed mind. Do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How does that happen? It's through the scripture, right? So Jesus is like this majestic bridegroom, and he goes away from his bride, but he comforts her, just like in those times that the Israelite man would leave, he would say, I'm going to give you gifts so that you remember me. And so Jesus ascends on high. He gives gifts to his bride. The first gift is the spirit, and the spirit then dispenses all these other gifts, and he inspires scripture. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Ari. I wish I would have known this back in the 80s. Okay. <laughs> I wish I would have known that too. Yeah. <laughs> I was, excuse me, always uh, debating with uh, the Latter day Apostles of Prophets. Okay. And this was their main proof text. Yeah. But see, in their mind, it was these people nowadays like Benny Hinn. Yes. But what kind of a gift is it when you have? mixture or just pure false teaching (laughs) the gifts that god gave are are the pure unadulterated word of god amen to us that's right and so thank you that's a great insight and it shows uh what you've been teaching is that god who ordains the end also ordains the means amen okay that's right and that's where the problem happens in modern evangelicalism because we don't yeah. believe that we want to come to God through the means that he's ordained. Amen. Exactly. We're looking for some other thing. So if there's right. a apparent sanctification issue, we go get a degree in marriage and family therapy and send people off to a therapist. Right. right. But it doesn't say here that God will sanctify us through a therapist. Exactly, and we defined, okay. I know you're out setting things up earlier, Bob, but we define that as being outside of the vine because it's a plan that God never yeah. ordained. And so I think all the way back to when we first opened up this subject probably yeah. a year ago, Yeah. Uh, when I was talking about it, I shared a thing about Naaman yes. told to go dip into Jordan. Yes. Okay. God ordained the means. Yes. And in the pride of man, Naaman wouldn't do it. Yeah. Well, we've got better rivers than the Jordan. <laughs> what a bunch of nonsense this is. And if Elijah or Elisha isn't just going to come out here and make right. a big deal and accept my gifts, he wanted to pay for it. Yeah. They wouldn't take that. But when he finally came to his senses and came to God through the means God ordained, yes. he came out clean. My dear That's brothers right. and sisters, if we'll lay down our preconceived ideas... Quit thinking we can pay for it. Yes. Quit thinking we can do it on our own because we know better than God. Yeah. And become like Naaman became and said, okay, that's how I'll come to God. Amen. He will cleanse us. Yes. There's no doubt that he will. Amen. That's right. It's exciting. Yes. Well, so saying don't think outside the box. Say don't think outside the line. Yeah. <laughs> very good, yes. Thank you, Rich. It's very good, yes. Don't think outside the vine. I've got to repeat that to get it on tape, yes. Um, through the 
try this one on, I think. Through the previous work of the Holy Spirit, we see repentance uh, as the giving up, our voluntary giving up of our sinful experience, but then God turns around and gives us our transformed life back to us. So we repentance and belief, I'm thinking. I'm sorry. Um, should, I, should I try that again? Yeah, try that again. Let okay. me just hear it one more time. Okay, through... We see repentance as the giving up of our sinful experience. That's through the previous work of the Holy Spirit. God grants us repentance. Yep, Second Timothy two twenty four and twenty five. Right. Yep, then He grants it. God grants us a transformed life back to us. So yep. we give up our life, and God gives it back to us. Yes, always realizing that it's God who enables us oh, to give up our lives. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly what you're saying. Yeah. No, I have no problems with that. It's well said. Yeah. Yep. Good. Thank you. Well, let me just continue in this verse. I know, I'm sorry. We stopped here in verse 12. Now, notice the purpose. What's the purpose for these men? Well, we're given a preposition of purpose, pros. It's for. So the reason we have these men who give us scripture, it's for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Now we have a temporal indicator, mekri, which is until. Well, until when? Well, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. Well, that's the goal of sanctification, is it not? To have a mature man, to have a mind that's transformed, not conformed to the image of this world. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Bob is going to be talking about the fullness of Christ today. Okay, very, very important. You listen to what Bob says about the fullness of Christ. Now, verse 14, notice we have a result clause. It says, as a result, it's a Hena clause. As a result, we are no longer to be children. Now, let me stop there. I don't like that translation. I didn't realize I didn't like it until I had all this done already. But the ESV is better here. The reason why is if you read that, it seems like we're to do something. As a result, we are no longer to be children. But it's really a result clause of God sending forth his gifts, the men who give us scripture. So the ESV renders it better because it's a result clause of what God has done. So listen to the ESV version. Verse 14 is rendered this way, so that we may no longer be children. See, that's the purpose and the result. God did it, not us. It's not that you, hey, now I can no longer be a child. It's true, but it's the purpose and the result of God's work. So again, the ESV is better, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And it goes on to talk about craftiness and deceitful schemes. So now, notice the contrast between the mature man and children. Children would be those whose minds are conformed to the image of this world, but the mature man is someone who thinks differently. The mature man is the one who has a transformed mind, who is now becoming a partaker in the fullness of Christ. And so do you see how God went to great lengths to sanctify his people? And it was through what? The word of God. That's how primary the word of God is. That's why in Acts 2.42, when it talks about the early church and what they did, they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. That's the first thing that's mentioned. Why? Because that's our means of sanctification. Okay? Now, let me just show you one other thing. I want to just leave on this. This is a passage that I really didn't see its ramifications until Bob just preached on it. It's uh, Colossians 1.28. I think this is fascinating. Colossians 1.28, Paul. And here's what I want to show you. I want to show you that, yes, we should believe in gospel-centered sanctification. There's been some writings out there that attack this idea, but it's scriptural. Colossians 1.28, Paul says, We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. I'm going to go fairly quickly, but first of all, proclaim. Notice in red, that's a gospel term. The term katangelo is a term that's used really exclusively for gospel preaching. That's what it has to do with. Now, notice that gospel preaching is not just for an elite, but notice it's for every man. Okay, it's for every man. It's not just the elite that get it. It's every man. Bob talked about the means of grace. There's a command, a promise, and it's accessible to all. Right? Those three items. Remember that worksheet that he handed out? This is for every man. Now, notice that where it says, I wish I could point. I don't have my cursor or my gizmo. I can't do it. Do you see where it says teaching every man, admonishing every man, and teaching every man? Those are participles of means. In other words, the admonishing and the teaching 
is incorporated with the proclaiming. So it's not, see, Paul isn't envisioning a one-time church meeting or a, a crusade where you hear the gospel and then you go home. But he's talking about intensive training in the scriptures. So it's the whole counsel of God does what? Well, here you have the purpose statement. The whole counsel of God is so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The whole counsel of God, the proclaiming of the gospel, the admonishing and the teaching, the whole counsel of God being taught will enable us to be presented complete before Christ. The term complete there is the identical term for mature back in Ephesians 4.13 that we just looked at. How does that come about? Through a transformed mind through the scriptures, right? Let me just leave you with some conclusions. I just want to read three things that I have to leave you with, and then I've got some three quotes. I want to leave you with this. I don't have time to go any further. We want to get back to the book of Revelation. But let me just say three things. Number one, those who deny gospel-centered sanctification are trying to be sanctified outside the vine. They're not remaining in Christ. Okay? Now, what happens if you don't remain in Christ? You won't bear fruit. Okay? It's that simple. Number two, we can't simply let God and let go. All right? That's Keswick. I'm sorry. <laughs> let go and let God. I always get it backwards. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> we can't just do that. Meaning what? Well, Hebrews 12, 14, it really does say, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Why can you and I pursue those things? Because if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. We have the Holy Spirit that enables us to pursue those things. We are to really do that. All right? Number three, to walk in the Spirit is to be devoted to the Holy Spirit's means of sanctification. Why? Because that's the gift that Christ gave. Christ gave the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gave Scripture and the men who give Scripture and all of the gifts. If you and I go outside the means of grace, you and I are going outside of the vine. If you and I say, well, I can be sanctified by a retreat or I can be sanctified through mysticism, I can be sanctified by going back to the Mosaic Law or to legalism or trying to find sins in my brothers and sisters or having them find sins in me, is that what Christ has ordained? No. What has he ordained? The means of grace. The apostles' teaching, the Lord's Supper, prayer and fellowship. Not only are those described in Acts 2.42, but they are prescribed for us elsewhere in the New Testament. Now, let me read you three things. I think this, this is a book, and obviously this man had a lot of time to write, and this is really well said. This man's name is David Peterson. The title of it is Possessed by God. I highly recommend everyone read that book if you have an opportunity. Listen, I want to read three things from him. He comes to conclusions at the end of his book. He deals with all of the data surrounding sanctification. Listen to what he says. And I'm not going to give you all, but I'll give you three conclusions. He says, number one, David Peterson says, the popular view that sanctification is a process of moral renew and change following justification is not the emphasis of the New Testament. Rather, sanctification is primarily another way of describing what it means to be converted or brought to God in Christ and kept in that relationship. It would be more accurate to say that renewal and change or transformation flow from regeneration and sanctification that God has already accomplished in our lives. Did everybody hear that? Pretty good stuff, huh? Second, he says, sanctification is thus primarily, sanctification is thus primarily the work of Christ on the cross and of the Holy Spirit through the word of the gospel, bringing us into an exclusive and dedicated relationship with God as the holy people of the new covenant. It is a concept with important ongoing implications for the church as well as for individual believers. And finally, I'll leave you with this. He also goes on to say, he says, quote, history shows that the terminology of sanctification is simply often used to describe everything that happens to us after conversion. The definitive emphasis of the New Testament is then soon obscured. The call to be holy can so easily degenerate into a moralistic and perfectionistic program for believers to pursue. In New Testament terms, we are to live as those who have been brought from death to life, discharged from the law to belong to Christ, 
led by the Spirit in a continuing struggle with the flesh. We are to live with a confidence in what God has already done for us and trust in Him to continue His transforming work in us until we see Him face to face. Unquote. I can't say it any better than what he just said. So is the point then that when people say, hey, get over the fact that Oops, you're justified and move into uh, sanctification, they're like, no, sanctification happens inside of justification. Amen. Well In said, other words, yes. they're not separated. You cannot separate them. That's exactly right. Well said. Yep. That's exactly what we're saying. I'm sorry, we're out of time. Um, Can I get 30 seconds? Yes. After you're all done praying. Yes, Absolutely. So, sounds good on tape. Well said. All right. I'm sorry I, I ran long again, but I, I hope everyone sees then. Let me just conclude with this, that sanctification, God is at work in you. It's essential and it's primary and it's through the means of grace, just as we've been teaching. We're doubling down on that. That's exactly what the scriptures teach. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you went to great extraordinary, extraordinary lengths to send forth your gifts upon us, to send forth your word so that we may be conform to the image of your son we pray heavenly father that we would be those who remain within the vine and the ordained plan that you have for us and not go out as lone sheep into the wilderness on our own i pray for my brothers and sisters that these words would sustain them that they would remain within your means and that we would persevere until the day that you break forth through the clouds to come and get your glorious church we ask these things in jesus name amen Amen. all right i'm sorry go ahead Oh, thanks. Thank you. That's very kind.